an hour of truth for the battered but proud people of the Empire State. From the financial and entertainment epicenter of New York City to the sleeping and empty small cities and towns of upstate, which once bustled with manufacturing, mining, and farming. We all know from inspiration, history, and nature, we deserve a return to the success and growth of generations past, a birthright being squandered by corruption in Albany, and the depredations of an insecure, scheming mountebank posing as governor, who loathes both us and himself. As liberty beckoned to enslaved peoples behind the Iron Curtain via American broadcasts after World War II, we now say, believe, rise, and join us. Welcome to Radio Free New York. Hey guys, welcome to Radio Free New York. I'm your host, Andrew Hollister, and I've got Bob Savage here in studio. Yes, you do. Uh, so uh, today is White House Wednesday. That is the day that we uh, typically we sit down, we interview presidential candidates, maybe we talk about national issues. Um, and so that is what we're going to do today. I think we have a candidate, but we might be having some trouble getting him connected. So while we wait to have that happen, um, I have a debate topics master list um, for national topics of debate and um, – A presidential debate, you mean? Pre- yeah. Well, as I'm looking at this list though, I'm thinking that presidential candidates aren't typically debating these items. Well, there's – first of all, the whole notion of a debate is a misnomer. There's, those aren't debates. Yeah, they're like they're, forums or it's, – It's basically dueling campaign speeches. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's right. Like who, who's going to be the better speaker and how much can they cram into the smallest amount of time possible and how – Far on the edge, can they push the monitor or the moderators past the rules? Because that uh, that definitely seems to be what what typically happens in what we would call debates. Or unless in the case of CNN moderated Democrat debates, uh, the the moderator is in the tank for one candidate or another. Yeah, and it definitely appears to be that way. You know, I would love to be a fly on the wall in some of those back rooms where uh, you can maybe see and hear what's really going on and do the are the campaigns there. I, I got to assume that the campaigns are like pressuring these um, people to like provide them with the content and the information in advance and – do they get to leverage favorability or is it just the moderators themselves prefer one candidate over another? Um, I I don't really know, but one thing for sure is like it always seems to be that way. Right. Right. I had the infamous case of you know the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren flap with a CNN moderator when uh, Elizabeth Warren queried Bernie about uh, uh, making some statement to the effect that no woman would ever be elected president. And uh, Bernie denied saying it, and then the moderator pressed it with the very next question. Yep, yep, absolutely. One of the things I do appreciate, though, I do appreciate um, when moderators push for an answer to the question. Um, This is something I have to do sometimes, and and it's it's almost uncomfortable, you know, when it has to be done. But I, I do candidate vetting, so I have to sit there on a committee, and the candidate says, hey, we want your endorsement. We got to ask them some questions. Sometimes those are pretty hard questions, and occasionally we'll get the candidate that, man, they've got that stump speech down. They're clearly like, you know, they're, they've been practicing, right? And so you ask them a question, 
and they give you this this very lengthy polished answer and by the time they're done speaking you're you actually almost can't remember the question that you asked and then you realize wait they they never answered that question so a lot of times i've got to be the guy that says okay so so this is what the question was like what's your answer and and it's it doesn't matter how you feel about the person. You could like or dislike them. It's always uncomfortable when you have to ask that. Um, and so when it's kind of refreshing when you see people actually press for an answer to the question. Well, they should, you know, I mean, the, the, and what's what's gone on there is that they're so they're so uh, trained to to give an answer which advances what their agenda is they, they it's a struggle of con- for control yeah. they're trying to they're trying to control the narrative and uh moderators all too often just let them get away with it because yeah. you know they're ideologically in line and they like what the answer was even though it wasn't responsive mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that but uh, you know you're absolutely right we need to insist on on answers like we, we would insist on in the practice of law in a courtroom yeah yeah please please direct the witness to answer the question yeah, yeah. It, it would be cool if, like, as the audience, you could have a button for that, you know. And if the if if the candidate like finishes and doesn't answer a question, you push it, and just like a little red light flashes or a little thing goes off. And oh, like, never mind that. How yeah. about like a little electroshock therapy? <laughs> yeah, there in you their go. chair. Well, no, that might be abused a little bit. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if Bernie would make it out of the debates that way. <laughs> well, certainly Trump wouldn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I've got this list of like all these various debate topics and and some of them you know the the first set that came up uh I, I was looking at this and i'm like yeah you know i feel like these don't truly get debated um it, you know like the the first one definitely i think gets some conversation but certainly not as much as it should and that that's that's all people should have the right to own guns um, this is from prepscholar.com, by the way. I don't know if they lean left. I don't know if they lean right. Um, but the stuff they've got in here is uh, pretty, uh, you know, pretty meaty topics that that should be talked about, I think. And then some of them, I don't know if they've ever been talked about. So the the second one, and this is under social and political issue debate topics. Um, the second one is the death penalty should be abolished, like whether or not the death penalty should be abolished. Um, I don't know that I've ever really heard that discussed in a presidential debate. Um, yeah, Buttigieg has a position on that, doesn't he? he? He has a position, but has it been like um, like asked and moderated and discussed like on the national debate floor, if you will? Like, That's no, too polarizing. They won't, they won't debate something like that. They'll deb- debate things like getting Wall Street to pay for, for free college. Sure. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, the, the next one on this list was, was also, to me, kind of interesting. I was like, where did this come from? Like, is this truly a hot topic? Um, and this is whether or not human cloning should be legalized. And I was like, is this is this a problem? I, I like am I out of touch with this like pressing issue? I like I'll give you guys a great example. Um, last night I was at the Monroe County Legislature session and um, I, I was there because there is um, – uh, Gun Owners of America was presenting their sanctuary to a county legislation. Um, so they had their two minutes to talk about it. 
Well, there were two items that were going up for a vote last night that I was not aware of. Um, one is for a climate change committee on the county level. Um, and, and I apologize because I, it was the first time I even heard that that was being proposed. So I don't have much information for you guys on it. Um, but the, the second one was actually a, um, uh, kind of like the same sort of ordinance that the 2A sanctuary will follow opposing the Reproductive Health Act passed by Albany. For those of you who aren't familiar with that legislation, um, it it does a number of things such as allowing late-term abortion. And we're talking all the way to pregnancy. Um, doesn't require doctors to – you know, if the abortion fails and that child is actually born, it, it doesn't require them to give any medical attention. At least that's how this doctor was explaining this, who who performs these procedures um, and, and a number of things. I was surprised to see um, how many Democrats actually got up and said, like, we totally oppose this. Feminist organizations showed up saying that they oppose it and actually make things significantly unsafer for women. Um, and then there was an example brought up of a woman who was stabbed in the Bronx, lost her child, and the district attorney was forced to drop charges on the loss of the child because of this act. So there, there seems to be bipartisan support like this is a problem. Um, but going, going through that whole process, uh, I have not seen or heard anything about human cloning. So... Um, it's not a big topic of conversation I, I, with I most people. So, yeah. Uh, so, you're listening to Radio Free New York. New York. Uh, this is White House Wednesday. We're talking about national things. We're going to take a real quick break, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Radio Free New York. Welcome back to Radio Free New York. I'm your host, Andrew Hollister, and uh, we're just talking about national debate topics, and we're talking about things, some things that get debated and other things they don't get debated. Um, so we, uh, we're going, going through this list here, but I definitely want to hear um, from you guys as, as listeners. So the phone line's open. That number is 585 585- Three four six three thousand. Once again, five eight five three four six three thousand. Um, and also, you know, jump on Facebook, jump on YouTube, search Andrew C. Hollister, uh, click on the live stream, and uh, post a comment. Like, you know, tell me what things you believe um, should be talked about nationally, especially by presidential hopefuls. That maybe aren't being talked about, or if they are being talked about, maybe you feel that they shouldn't be talked about, um, or maybe you feel that they're not really answering your question, which I, I believe is probably the number one thing most Americans would say is um, that we're not – they're not talking about the things that we need to hear them talk about, and when they do talk about what we want them to talk about, they're not actually answering our questions. So that, that's 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 my uh, that's my take on it. Um, so what I've got for you guys, I've got a list here of uh, from prepscholar.org of 
social and political issues that are supposed to be debated. Um, I I don't have like a like where they came up with this. Yeah, I was list. Say, uh, they're supposed to be debated according to whom? I, I according guess. to PrepScholar.com and a part of their uh, debate topics master list. Okay. So, so these are the topics that Prep Scholar would like to hear discussed. Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. They, whoever they are. Yeah, whoever they are, they're ranking top in Google, so like they're at least doing their SEO right. Um, so, so the last topic I I thought was like pretty bizarre to be honest, and that was whether or not human cloning should be legalized. Well, I think we can settle that debate pretty quickly. I've got three words for you, and that's another Hillary Clinton. Another Hillary Clinton. Another Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, exactly. A, a new, they just clone, clone a replacement. Cuomo. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. There's, uh, I think there's probably a lot of religious discussion around human cloning, and oh, I, yeah. I'm not, I'm not aware of the uh, scientific um, back and forth and religious back and forth on it. So I, I couldn't, I certainly couldn't uh, adequately. Um, argue either way on this one myself well there's some medical ethics involved there. yeah i think so i i think so and and i think that this probably would go deeper too like the cloning of animals to use for food if that ever became something i i don't know it could be happening right now i i don't know much about this topic well yeah dolly the sheep yeah remember dolly the sheep yeah that was a long time ago so i'm assuming that the technology's technology's gotta gotta be there yeah yeah um, all right. So the next one, though, I think we're all pretty familiar with, and that is should drugs be legalized? Should all drugs be legalized? Um, there's certainly a large push for marijuana legalization, or should I say, I should probably say decriminalization. I think decriminalization is the large push rather than legalization. Um, and I, I think I actually did a show about this probably a couple months ago, explaining the differences between legalization and decriminalization. Um, and I, I believe the direction I'm leaning towards for most things is that when legalization is, is put in place, um, what, what happens is taxes and regulation. But when it's decriminalized, it's almost more free and more readily available and more, you know, you have better access to it when it's decriminalized than when it's legalized. So based on my understanding, you should definitely check out that show where I I break it all down. But I think more things ought to be decriminalized than legalized. Um, And I think you could look at that with many different things. Um, You know, marijuana decriminalization is, is one thing. But uh, we we should be looking at decriminalizing anything that doesn't harm somebody else. You know, anything that that you do that doesn't pose violence or harm to another person um, that is currently illegal, we should decriminalize it. And there we go with a slippery slope. Because, you know, it's very funny that you bring this up because our friend Pete Buttigieg, who did very well in Iowa and New Hampshire, mm-hmm. uh, got, uh, got zapped on uh, a stance he took. Uh, an online position about the legalization of drugs, mm, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and he was much more moderate sounding uh, until a uh, uh, a member of the press asked him, "Well, your website says legalization for anything," and uh, and so this woman asked him, "What about heroin?" Sure, yeah, absolutely, and uh, that that's the thing. I I think that. What we have found as a society, and we don't necessarily have to like this, um, 
is that, you know, people are going to do it anyways. People are going to do it anyways. And that's people are going to murder other people anyways, too. Yeah. No, absolutely. So what's what's the uh, stance? Uh, By the way, on the line, we uh, we have Mark Whitney. So I'm going to turn I'm going to turn this over to you and and let you proceed with the interview that we threatened, excuse me, promised uh, (laughs) earlier in the show. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, here we are. Are we live? Is this live right now? We are live right now. You are live on the airwaves and on the Internet. All right. That's excellent. You know, we've got this thing called time zones in the United States, and uh, uh, we're three hours from you, and I thought it was 3 o'clock my time. It turns out it's 9 o'clock your time. Uh, so, uh, so I just fired six people. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> They're still working for me. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> oh, so you might be interested to know, Mark, that uh, two days ago on this very show, your host here, Andrew, was uh, advocating doing away with time zones, which certainly would have exacerbated this problem. See, look, see, look at that. I've, we we now have a perfect example this of is, uh, this is. Yep, this is an excellent idea. This is an excellent idea. It's kind of like you know, you know, it's all it's all all artificial anyway. Time zones are, are artificial, like borders in a way. It's like nobody really knows where the border is. Nobody really knows where the time zones are, but we know when we miss appointments. that that is true so i want to give you a chance um to introduce yourself real real quick here um to to the audience tell us um you know where you're from where you live now maybe a little bit of background about yourself i think we've got about five minutes till uh till we hit our break okay that sounds great so so here we are so it's mark whitney it's mark with a k i spell it the right way markwhitney.com and I am CEO of the Law.net Corporation, the Law.net, and I founded that company uh, 20 years ago. And what we do is is we compete. Get this, see if this sounds familiar. We compete successfully against an entrenched duopoly. Uh, there, there are two big companies called Westlaw and LexisNexis that have had a stranglehold on legal research in the United States. And 20 years ago, I started the Law.net to democratize access to the law so that attorneys on just Main Street USA, you go in, you need to do a bankruptcy, a divorce, something like that, they can see all the law from coast to coast, from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon, for 50 bucks a month. It's never been more than 50 bucks a month. And uh, uh, so the reason I started this company is because uh, uh, I lost a company in my 20s. So I'm 60 years old. So I'm talking about a loss that happened 30 years ago. And I owned Ben and Jerry's franchises in New Hampshire, and I borrowed a bunch of money from a bunch of uh, – there were some predatory lenders, and then I was a predatory borrower. So we deserved each other. And uh, so everything blew up, and there was a lot of litigation in bankruptcy court and in federal district courts. And what I learned from that experience is that there's actually a, a, a caste system or a class system in the United States uh, among attorneys, so attorneys who work in big firms, who work for governmental instrumentalities, who work for big corporations, they can see all the law. But just regular lawyers on Main Street, they could only afford to look at the law in their state or their federal district. So the law net solves that problem. And uh, so now my life is defined by 40,000 uh, lawyer subscribers, and I literally sell them the law which is kind of a magic trick because the way I learned about this problem was that in the, uh, as, as a result of, of losing this business, 
I got in trouble with the federal government. I got I was indicted in New Hampshire in 1991 because I had given a couple of banks a couple of tax returns that weren't quite what they appeared to be, and it turns out they have no sense of humor for that. And uh, there was a uh, there was a federal criminal case that happened, and I got convicted on some counts. And I represented myself at my trial because at the time, this is 30 years ago, New Hampshire was so small, it didn't have a federal public defender's office. But what they did have down in the basement of the federal courthouse, they had a monkey, and, and they give the monkey a peanut, and it spins a wheel. And, and the names on the wheel are all real estate lawyers. They're not criminal defense lawyers. And they gave me a, they gave me a guy, his name was Jim Lappin. I call him Leave Him Lappin. And so, uh, so we made him standby counsel. I represented myself. Uh, and and I got convicted on some things, and they shipped me off to prison. And I'm sitting in the in the jailhouse, uh, working with a prison typewriter. And it took me uh, took me nine months to prepare my appeal. And so ultimately, I got my sentence declared unconstitutional. Um, I actually beat the Department of Justice, representing myself as a high school graduate um, uh, from Otterdale Union High School in the metropolis of Brand of Vermont, which is about 3,500 people. I grew up in a town of 200 people, Hubbardton, Vermont. Uh, my mom uh, uh, was the only vote for McGovern in 1972. She had a in that town. She had a bumper sticker that said, "Don't blame me. I voted for McGovern." Um, so, so it's kind of a. This isn't the kind of story that you you put in your yearbook. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get Ben and Jerry's, and uh, you know, you wouldn't put this in your yearbook that you you're gonna start a business and then. Uh, you know, blow everything up and then go to jail and learn about the law and then, and then end up, uh, you know, being a company that has 40,000 lawyers as your customers. But uh, that's uh, that sometimes is how creativity works. Hey, Mark, got to ask you a quick question as we go out to break here. Did you ever see the movie My Cousin's Vinny? I've, I've seen it 10 times. It's my yeah, favorite that, that, movie. I was going to say, you, you probably yeah. should if you haven't. Go ahead, Andrew. <laughs> All right, guys, uh, this is White House Wednesday in Radio Free New York. We're going to take a brief break here. When we come back, we're going to talk, talk more with Mark Whitney, who's running for president of the United States. listening to Radio Free New York. All right. Welcome back to Radio Free New York. I'm your host, Andrew Hollister. We have Mark Whitney on the phone. He is running for president in the 2020 election. Uh, Mark, why don't you tell us your top three policies that you would want to uh, make happen if elected? Uh, War, war, and war. Trade war, drug war, war on terror. Um, I'm the only citizen to have sued a president to end the participation of U.S. armed forces in the civil war in Libya. When Barack Obama woke up one day and decided unilaterally to deliver uh, 7,000 Hellfire missiles into Libya a few years back uh, with no authorization from Congress, uh, no budget, uh, literally just a guy dropping bombs, and they went on TV and he said it was a limited kinetic action. I said, I don't think so. And uh, I spent $60,000 of my own money. I hired lawyers. And uh, you can Google uh, Whitney v. Obama. Uh, I wanted to make sure that somebody stood up. Uh, uh, Jonathan Turley, who you may know, Georgetown law professor, he represented 
four congressmen in a similar suit, two Republicans, two Democrats. Uh, so this was not uh, this was not a, a uh, an act of uh, civil disobedience. This was a legitimate uh, citizen lawsuit, and and we had the government on the ropes uh, so bad on the law that uh, Obama's lawyers at the Department of Justice uh, at one point they actually argued in their filing um, that uh, that the Supreme Court had never defined the word war. Uh, so who's to really say what war is anyway? And you know, tell that to. Uh, Tell that to the men and women that have uh, died defending this country that uh, that you don't know what war is. Uh, so what happened in that litigation in both these cases, uh, two federal judges independent of each other, they sat on the cases and uh, waited for Muammar Gaddafi to be killed, thereby ending the conflict, and then they dismissed the cases as moot. Um, but the uh, uh, this is uh, war powers and international law is kind of my wheelhouse. And uh, we, uh, the, the United States has been a rogue state uh, since the events uh, leading up to 9-11. And, and when, I, when I talk to, about 9-11, I usually get some comments uh, saying, oh, Whitney, uh, uh, doesn't, uh, Whitney doesn't believe that 9-11 was an inside job. Well, uh, no one has explained to me uh, sufficiently what happened to Building 7. But when I talk about 9-11, I, I stipulate to the official version, right? The official version is... Uh, uh, that a bunch of thugs got together and flew a couple of planes into buildings. That that that's actually what happened. But but we act as if uh, we act as if uh, the, the United States in the last 20 years has acted as if that was an attack by a nation state, and so it, it then went out and started bombing arbitrarily nation states that are sovereign uh, that have never attacked the United States. The uh, 9/11 was a criminal act. The, the, uh, there was a similar criminal act in Boston at the marathon. It wasn't the same scope, but it was the identical status. Some chuckleheads set off some bombs, and one of them got killed by the police, and the other one was tried and is now serving life in prison. Uh, so there's no universe under international law where the United States is authorized to uh, bomb sovereign nations that have not attacked the United States. And, and the reason that Obama was able to do that in Libya and the reason the United States has been able to get away with this rogue activity is because the United States is not a party to the Rome Statute, which is uh, nations who are a party to that treaty. Uh, they are subject to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. And when Barack Obama became president, he brought in Hillary Clinton to run the Secretary of State, and she brought in a lawyer named Harold Coe from Yale, who was, one of the, one of, who was noted throughout his career as being one of the leading human rights attorneys, one of the leading advocates for not having aggressive war. Yeah, uh, the, the, uh, the aggressive war uh, doctrine in, the internet, in international law actually mirrors the uh, principle of non-aggression that defines the Libertarian Party. In other words, you, you should never be the person that starts to fight. You keep your nose out of other people's business. Uh, if, there, if there are missiles coming in, you know, aimed at Cleveland, well, the president is duty-bound to intercept those missiles. But what you're not allowed to do is attack other nations. So as president, what I will do is I will sign the Rome Statute, and that will bring a screeching halt to the war on terror because officials will then be subject to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. And this conspiracy to commit war crimes that is now nearly 20 years old will come to a screeching halt. All right. And so, so that's, that's that war. What about uh, trade war and drug war? Well, the the, uh, the war on drugs is something I understand. Uh, I understand uh, at a, at a deep level. Uh, 
1992, I don't know what you were doing in 1992, but I was sitting in a federal prison working to get myself out and to get my sentence declared unconstitutional, which was done by a future Supreme Court justice, uh, Stephen Breyer, who's now on the Supreme Court. So I, I, I was raised in the whitest state in the country. I grew up in Vermont. And when I was shipped off to Allenwood Federal Prison Camp in White Deer, Pennsylvania, uh, that was that was the camp where first-time drug offenders from uh, New York and Philly and Baltimore and D.C. That's 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 where they went. So there were 900 men there. Uh, it was about 25 percent white people, and you know they had committed white-collar crimes. And then it was about 75 percent uh, blacks and Puerto Ricans. And uh, and and these young black men are getting hammered, you know, with with 10 years for, you know, some very small amount of cocaine. And, and you know, some of them were really sophisticated businessmen in that they were, you know, uh, there's this one guy in particular who I was friends with who got 10 years. He he had a, you know, he was, he dealt, he dealt cocaine in D.C. and most of his clients, you know, were doctors and dentists and lawyers and, and, and politicians and people that worked on the Hill. And he was very careful to, to sell to people who, who were entrenched in polite society because he felt that, you know, he he was less likely to get caught. But when one of them got caught, they ratted him out. Now he's got to do 10 years prohibition, doesn't work as president. Uh, I will pardon nonviolent uh, uh, drug offenders. The idea that the, the government has some role in, in dictating what goes into your body or what comes out of your body, you know, whether you're, whether you're putting drugs into your body or whether you want to regulate uh, whether or not a fetus sees the light of day. The 14th Amendment does not confer jurisdiction of the federal government over fetuses. Jurisdiction over fetuses, that's, that's up to the woman. And uh, so, you know, prohibition of all these, these types of, uh, you know, libertarians believe in markets. The free market, the free mar- a free market is never wrong. So policymakers can they can they they make a policy that says we're going to have this outcome we're going to have zero tolerance for these substances and they know when they do that they're creating a black market they know when they do that they're creating a market for the private prison industry the Thirteenth Amendment is the thir- the Constitution was silent on the topic of slavery and indentured servitude until the Thirteenth Amendment was ratified and the Thirteenth Amendment says that slavery and indentured servitude shall not exist in the United States. Unless, comma, you have been duly convicted, and then it's fine. So if you if you own a publicly traded private prison, you know all you got to do is go down and buy yourself some congressmen, and you make a list of all the drugs people are going to do, even if they are illegal, right? And you try to you try and 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 you 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 create a conflict between the free market because you know I have never done cocaine, but I have cokehead friends who say cocaine is great. So rich Americans are going to buy cocaine, and they're going to use it. And the government knows that. And they know that when they create a law that says you can't use cocaine, we're going to criminalize it. They know that there's a, that there's a population that's at risk, and they know that that population is young black men, and they know those people are easier to convict. And they know so, – so, so everybody leaves a winner, right? The, the rich white people get their cocaine, and the young black men have to go and sit in these publicly traded private prisons and and then people like me, you know, who've done well in life and got a little money, and they want their kids to go to private schools. You know, they invest in the private prisons, they make money on it, and then they use the money to uh, to they launder the money through their tutor and bribe their kid into USC, 
and then they get indicted and they have to go to Boston and plead guilty to bribing the tutor. It's a, it's like the recycling logo. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's an awful system. Um, we have about uh, thirty seconds here to go to break. So give me a give me one sentence on the trade war. Okay, so. Uh, uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna spend 15 seconds saying we should hold until the break because I have a great, great, great free trade story to tell you involving my autistic son, and it takes about three minutes to tell, and your audiences are gonna want to miss it. So there's your teaser for the break. All right, <laughs> there we go. Uh, so you're listening to Mark Whitney. He's running for president of the United States. This is Radio Free New York. We're gonna take a break. We'll be back in a moment. I sent a shout-out along the network line here to our friends at WENY, The Patriot in Elmira, uh, 1230 Elmira, 1450 Corning. Uh, let's see, 103.3, 106.9 on the south side, as well as WACK, Newark, New York. We'll be back. Radio Free New York. We're just getting Mark ready here for, uh, you know, the uh, for the White House with a little hail to the chief. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to Radio Free New York. I'm your host, Andrew Hauser. We have Mark Whitney on the line. He is running for president. And, Mark, you said you've got a story you wanted to to share with us. Yeah, I've got a story. It's one of my favorite stories to share on the trail. And it's a, it's a libertarian story with a, with a California twist. I'm calling you from that. I'm talking to you from San Diego, where I've lived the last 20 years. Uh, my uh, my youngest son, Chris, is 32 today, and he is uh, autistic. Uh, when Chris was 18, uh, his Xbox video game uh, broke. His Xbox uh, broke, and uh, he figured out how to fix it, and then he invented an Xbox repair kit. And the way he, he – uh, uh, so the Xbox had proprietary screws and washers and parts, and you, there was no screwdriver on the market to even take the screws out. So, so here's what Chris did, and I just think it's a beautiful thing. He hooked up with his friend Wilson in Beijing. You know the Beijing they keep in China? So he met Wilson playing video games. And he, he says, Wilson, can you hook me up with some engineers in China? And, you know, they got, you, can't, you can't walk two steps in Beijing without tripping over engineers that are looking for work. So Wilson hooked Chris up with engineers in China. And they designed and, and remanufactured replacement parts and proprietary screws and washers uh, for the Xbox. They manufacture a little, a little uh, a special screwdrivers and also this clamp that you could pop the thing open. And Chris, uh, this Xbox repair kit that Chris uh, uh, put together with Wilson, you know, one day, I swear to God, I'm not making this up, hand to God, uh, uh, there were boxes filled with parts. That, that our garage was filled with stuff with Chinese characters that said Chris Whitney in English on the side. And this Xbox repair kit went viral. And he, he designed this uh, with money he saved working the In-N-Out. And using the principles, the financial literacy became really the thing that defined my family's culture as a result of the company I lost in the 20s. So, so Chris bootstrapped a company by rolling over his profits year after year. By the time he was about 28, he had one of the top 500 Amazon fulfillment centers. He was doing 15 million bucks a year at his peak and employing people. He had a fulfillment, a a warehouse and and everything. And then uh, uh, by the time he got, when he got to $10 million, when he got to 10 million, he got a letter from the state of California. And you would think it would be from the governor saying, hey, 
geez, Chris, it's great to have an entrepreneur in her 20s here who bootstrapped a company at $10 million with no debt, no interest, no family money. Not, not, that's, not the, that's not the letter he got. He got a letter from the tax department saying, now that you're at $10 million, you've got to cash flow your sales tax. You've got to prepay your sales tax before you sell anything. And so now Chris doesn't run his company in California. He doesn't do it here. And um, so, so, but the point of the story is that, that there were no lawyers, there were no CPAs, there were no, uh, there, there, there was, it was just two, two kids that met each other on a video game, trusting each other, right? Chris was sending tens of thousands of dollars to his friend Wilson in Beijing. And then, and then you know, four weeks later, a big barge would pull up to the bay here in San Diego and parts would get unloaded. Chris would go down to customs. He had a customs agent. It all gets cleared through. And uh, it's just two people trusting each other. It was, it's the best example of, you know, it's a model for what the world should be as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, that's that's a great story. That's uh, that's really awesome. One of the things that I want to make sure we cover since we've only got about, I think, six minutes left in the show, I want to give you a chance to answer a couple questions that I know hang on everybody's mind when we talk about libertarian candidates, and that is that Congress is made up of Democrats and Republicans. So if you got elected as a libertarian, how are you going to work with Democrats and Republicans to get some of these things done um, that you're talking about? Well, that question is super easy for me to answer. In addition to being CEO of the Lawnet Corporation, um, I am also a, a, a national figure in that uh, for several years I have toured the North American Independent Theater, uh, uh, theater Circuit with my one-man show called Fool for a Client about that one time in my 20s when I represented myself in federal courts. A hit show that landed me on the cover of Story Magazine with Drew Carey and Russell Brandt. And my favorite city to perform that show is Washington, D.C. So I go in, I do a two-week run, it's sold out. And the people in the audience, it's just down the road from the White House, the studio theater where I perform. The people in the audience are Democrats or Republicans. Most of them work for the government. A lot of them are prosecutors. A lot of them work on the Hill. They're Democrats and Republicans. And I perform this libertarian story for them. And you can go to markwhitney.com, your listeners, click on memoir. You can watch the show for free. You can see me performing this show, Fool for a Client, in the Studio Theater. And what you'll see is a guy telling a libertarian story to Democrats and Republicans. And uh, at the end of the show, it's a standing ovation. So here's, here's what I've learned that a lot, of, a lot of libertarians haven't figured out. Uh, what this story does, what Fool for a Client does, is it reminds the Democrats and Republicans of what they forgot they believe. We are a libertarian people with an authoritarian government. But when people watch Fool for a Client, it reminds them what they forgot they believe. And that's even true of federal prosecutors. You know, because I have this, this legal software company, I have all the contact information for the nation's lawyers. So when I go into a city like D.C., we email the attorneys in that, in that city. And so, you know, half the people in the audience are prosecutors that work at the Department of Justice. The end of the show... They're giving me their business card, shaking my hand, saying, I agree with everything you said here about the war on drugs, about the zero tolerance. And if there's anything I can do to support you, let me know. So what I've learned from these experiences is that, you know, I have a tremendous amount of empathy for, for people. I trust people. And, and people are on a treadmill. Everyone's doing the best they can. Everyone's just trying to survive. So when we go out there as libertarians and we assume that people are stupid 
we assume that people don't know they're free. We're ignoring the reality that the, the messaging they're getting from their news bubbles and the, and, and the treadmill that they're on, just trying to make a living. Even somebody who's a prosecutor at the Department of Justice, everyone's just, everyone's just doing the best they can. So you have to have a tremendous amount of empathy. You have to listen. You have to tell stories. And you have to remind people what they forgot they believe because everybody believes in these fundamental principles of, of uh, privacy, of free political speech, of freedom of religion, of equal access to justice, of uh, equal access to the law, uh, equal protection of the law, equal access to justice. Everyone believes in these things. Everybody wants peace. Nobody wants war except the war profiteers. Nobody wants prison except the prison profiteers. So we are all working toward the same things. We believe in the same things as a people. We are a libertarian people with an authoritarian government. So I believe, based on my experience performing this show and otherwise, that I can bridge that divide and, and always be the guy, use this presidential platform to remind citizens, to remind everybody, people in D.C., remind people what we believe, remind people what we're all about. And, and, and the, 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 best, the biggest opportunity of being president is the opportunity to assign ideas to people. And the Democrat and Republican presidents have been assigning bad ideas because they're owned and controlled by, by their parties. They're owned and controlled by large corporations. And uh, as a libertarian president, you know, I've got my money. I'm good. Uh, you know, I, I, in, my, in my 20s, I, I violated the first rule of hold, uh, which is when you're in a hole, stop digging. In my 30s, I dug out. my 40s, I rebuilt. my 50s, I killed it. In my 60s, I am here to be of service to this party, to this nation, as is my whole family. And we're going to build this thing up to be something great. Awesome. Yeah. No, I, I think that that gives a, uh, a pretty good, you know, synopsis of, of how you intend to do that. So essentially, if I were to summarize what you've said, um, you believe that everybody is essentially libertarian and libertarian ideals. They just don't know it yet. And when they're going to hear about it, they realize that, yeah, they want freedom, they want liberty, and they're going to move in that direction. Is that is that a good summary? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think freedom and liberty are ambiguous terms. I mean, different things to different people. But um, I think that a libertarian president, the, the value of that podium is you have the opportunity to remind people what they forgot they believe. I don't think, you know, the libertarian national, uh, the libertarian platform to me is, is the Bill of Rights and the Constitution in different words. It's not a second steering wheel. It's extracted from the principles in our founding documents. So the libertarian, we wouldn't have a political organization called the Libertarian Party if it wasn't for these founding documents, if it wasn't for unfettered political speech and the right to associate. So these are fundamental principles that just are not messaged by the Democrat and Republican parties and the media that supports them. So that's, that's what's going to change when I'm president. I know how to sling a story. I know how to tell a joke and lighten people up so you can talk about difficult things and work together. All right. Thank you very much. That is all the time we have today. Guys, this is Mark Whitney. He's running for president of the United States. We'll catch you guys tomorrow, same time, same place, on Radio Free New York.